Well, if you would turn in your Bibles as we start a fresh book here tonight in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. It's a little ways back in your New Testament. It's uh, easy to find if you're starting in Matthew because it's right after 1 Timothy. And... Uh, <laughs> And it, there isn't a third Timothy, sorry, but it, there is second Timothy. Second Timothy. Now, what this book of the Bible is known for more than any other book is that it is the last writing of the Apostle Paul. After he wrote this letter, most believe right around 67 AD. Now, some think it was sooner, like 64 to 65, but uh, the scholars that I look to and lean to say it was a 67 that he wrote this letter, and in AD 68 is when Paul died. Now, if you are in the history there, you know that 70 AD is an essential date to know for Jerusalem, because that's when Titus went down and destroyed Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that had been around, and of course, the amazing temple of Solomon, uh, and then later, um, once that was gone, uh, they had the other temples that were built, and eventually Herod's temple, which is one of the seven ones of the world, also destroyed. And so Paul, we're now at 67 AD. He actually was arrested and released in 61. And he was out freely preaching the gospel. And then he was rearrested and taken back to Rome. This second arrest was not the cushy house arrest that he had had the first time being imprisoned. This was coming back and being thrown into a dungeon in Rome. If you go to Rome today, they'll take you to a site called the Mamertine Prison. And I think there's good reason to think that is the exact prison. But the thing that'll shock you, it's more like a hole in the ground than even a prison. And so Paul was in a damp, rat-infested, smelly, miserable place with true violent criminals suffering greatly. But yet you won't hear that from him. A matter of fact, he talks about his prayer meetings. He talks about the joy he has. And he's gonna talk about how it was too much for everybody else to stay with him to the end. It was a little bit much for them to wonder and uh, amazement, would God really allow his man to end up in such a weakened, horrible place for such a long time? And then the end would be beheaded. And, uh, and so we're gonna learn a lot about Paul we're going to learn a lot about his desire of what he wants in pastors. And we're going to learn a lot about ourselves. Because uh, 
we're human just like they were. And uh, when we see it from the point of view of what they were seeing and, and what they should have saw, it can help us to not repeat uh, the mistakes of the past. And so he's writing to Timothy this second time, the last time. And Timothy, again, is a pastor in Ephesus, doesn't want to be there. Paul in his first letter said, please stick it out. Don't leave. Um, I know it's hard, uh, but I know it's not necessarily your calling, but I, I need you to stay there and continue. So Paul, this Gentile name, we're not sure who gave it to him, but it means little. Uh, his original Hebrew name was Saul. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, which was a very prideful name in essence. The, you know, the tribe of Benjamin, and they have their little boy, and he's going to be great like a king. Uh, we're going to name him king in essence, Saul. But Paul was a little guy. He wasn't the great Saul. And he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle, the word Jesus, and the word Christ are what we would call transliterations, not translations. When you come to a text, in this case, we're going from Greek to English, and there isn't an English word, then to try to stay true to the text and give a literal translation, that's the attempt, it really doesn't happen, but that's what we call it, you transliterate the word. So what we're actually looking at, the word apostle, would be very similar to the Greek word. Instead of an A, there would be an alpha and so forth. But at glance, it, you would see it looks similar. So this is actually a Greek word, and then we sort of English-size it um, and enunciate it the way we want to enunciate it, and we say apostle. The same with Jesus. Actually, the English word for Jesus is Joshua. In the Hebrew, it's the word Yah, God, Shua, salvation. God is salvation. And so that name uh, means the anointed one, the one who would come. It's a, it's a very powerful name. But again, the gospel has been brought to us from the Greek language. And so... Uh, we often forget about our roots. We often forget that our Messiah was a Jew who dressed like a Jew, ate like a Jew, didn't go to church. Jesus never went to church. He went to synagogue. Interesting, isn't it? We, we start to, well, you got to go to church like Jesus did. Well, Jesus went to church at a synagogue on Saturday. He didn't, and they didn't believe in Jesus. A matter of fact, the, the synagogues very much didn't like Jesus. So we don't want to go to church like Jesus did. <laughs> so we got to remember these things. Now, the, as the gospel got spread throughout the world, it was from the Greek text. Now, when you go back in history, the Greek society affected the world really like no other society. And so today, the Greek influence is still very strong throughout the world. Whether it's in uh, the libraries and the way they, they, they looked at that. Of course, the Egyptians in Alexandria had amazing libraries as well. But um, architecture um, and, of course, the Greek language 
spread throughout the world. It was the English language of their day. And so when we're trying to study the New Testament, you really got to stay as close to the Greek. Well, did Jesus speak Greek? No, he spoke Aramaic, um, possibly some Greek. But uh, this is how the written language of the day was spread in Greek. And so we sort of got to absorb that a minute. And so therefore, that's why even though we are in English, now in Spanish, do they say the Greek name Jesus? No, they use their Spanish word, Jesus, right? So some cultures do do that. But we don't. We stay with the actual Greek enunciation. And then the word Christ. In the Hebrew, it's the word Messiah, right? But here, again, we stay with the Greek enunciation. So apostle means the sent one. We just studied Revelation, and we realized there are the 12 apostles in which the foundation of heaven is built. So there are the 12 apostles that have a position that will never be fulfilled. But yet, as we read through the book of Acts, there's several more than just the apostles called apostles. Barnabas and, of course, Paul. Now, some say Paul is the 12th apostle replacing Judas. I think that could very well be. Others say, no, God probably confirmed Peter, and it's Matthias, the one they picked, even though it was with a lottery system, um, picking straws. Uh, nevertheless, God confirmed that. So I, I, I don't know. We'll get to heaven, and we'll find out. But nevertheless, he was sent by God. He did get direct revelation from the Lord after he was converted on the road to Damascus and then in Damascus for three years. He left, and he lived in Arabia, Saudi Arabia, interesting, for three years. And out there in the Saudi Arabian desert, he received direct revelation from Jesus, really understanding the Old Testament that he would have had memorized as a young boy. And then, of course, studied immensely uh, under the tutelage of, of many, especially the teacher of all teachers of the Hebrews of that day, Gamaliel. And then after those three years, he just went back home to his Roman home, his Roman parents, they were Jews, but they had with great expense bought Roman citizenship. And so Paul would have went back and lived sort of as an elite of the society in Tarsus for 14 years, 11 years there, three years in Arabia, three years in Arabia, 11 years in Tarsus, and 14 years later, Barnabas got him and said, hey, come over to the Antioch near Jerusalem, several Antiochs, and, and uh, help me pastor the church. It's exploding. We don't have enough teachers. And that's how Paul started uh, ministry. But even after 14 years of Paul being away from the, the limelight, there were still a lot of people very paranoid that he was a secret agent uh, by the Pharisees sent in to, to undermine the church and get names and, and persecute them and took quite a while to convince them otherwise. But it was unique. Paul came back with a very clear vision of the gospel, not just to the Jews, that's 
given, but to all the world. Remember back in Genesis 12, God speaks to Abraham, the first chosen Jew. And he says, I am going to bless you. And in your family, I'm going to bless you. And then through the entire families of the world, I'm going to make you a blessing. Referring to the Messiah, the Savior of the world, coming from the Jewish race, from the lineage of Abraham, and, and then to be the Messiah of the whole world. So that was Paul's calling. It wasn't a committee. It wasn't himself being ambitious, saying, hey, if I'm going to be a Christian, I want to be one of the top guys. I want to be one of the apostles. It was never anything that Paul thought up. It was nothing Paul decided to do. It was something God did. Stopped him on the road. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Why are you kicking against the goats? And, uh, and then God called him. And you might remember in Acts 13, after a long time of teaching in Antioch, they were having a prayer meeting with the various prophets and teachers. And they were just praying, ministering to the Lord, it says. I, I love that. Remember, our prayers are an incense to God. It's not about us and getting from God what we need. It's about worshiping him when we pray, isn't it? And to realize he, he loves our prayers. Just like you love your kids or grandkids coming to you saying, hey, would you, you know, do this for me? Would you go for a walk with me? Would you take me to the park and swing me? You know, yes, we'd, I'd love to. It's, it's beautiful that they're coming to you and want you to be a part of their life. In the same way, our prayers are an incense. So they were ministering to the Lord, and the Lord, through one of the prophets, said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to do. So it's something God had been speaking to them, but in this prayer meeting, it was confirmed by prophetic utterance. Now, why does Paul have to say this at the very last letter? Because Paul had his haters, didn't he? And there wasn't a few haters. It, it seems like there was a large percentage of the Christian church throughout the known world of that day that really did not like Paul. And some of the most fruitful places he had started churches and the churches flourished were some of the places that were the hardest on Paul. Paul had an amazing church in the Corinth area, but yet in both of the first and second Corinthians, he has to rebuke them for not wanting to acknowledge him as a leader in their life. And he makes it clear to them, no, my, my leadership still reaches you. And I'm afraid for you that if you don't recognize the authority God's put in your life, God is going to humble you, and I'm going to have to watch him humble you, and I don't want that to happen. So acknowledge the role I am playing in your life. I am your father of the faith. You have one dad, and that's me. I came, and I preached the gospel when you guys never even heard of the name of Jesus. And then after that, yes, Apollos came 
tremendous ministry. Peter came, had a tremendous time, and there are others that came and spoke into your life and pastored the church for a season and, and did, uh, for many of you, that was a time you grew in your life and it was amazing. But none of those guys did God ever mean to replace the role I have in your life as the apostle. And now I am speaking to you as your father in the faith. I'm speaking to you as an apostle by the will of God. Listen to me. Unless I have to come down there and God rebukes you and I have to watch it. And so he is saying once again, Timothy, you and the crowd in Ephesus there are minimizing my ministry like now many have done for years because I've been in prison. Do you guys remember in Philippians? People, when they came to speak to the various churches, would add in, and I was right and Paul was wrong because God put Paul in prison to shut him up. And I'm right because Paul's in prison and I'm not. I'm here in front of you. And they were preaching in a way to hurt Paul. And, and Paul just said, you know what? They're preaching Christ, even though they're really off on some other things. I'm just glad Christ is being preached. I'm, I'll let God sort it all out. But we know now, don't we? Just like we know about Job now. You know, Job and his friends had no idea what was going on when Job was going through his trials. Well, the early church had, couldn't sort it out with Paul. He's preaching this gospel of grace that nobody else is preaching. Paul is talking about grace at this level. They're teaching grace at this level. And Paul is saying, guys, that's the Jewishness in you. That's the Pharisee in you. Get, shake that loose, man. Grace is up here. And they were perverting what Paul was saying. He says in Romans, he says, some are saying, Paul is saying, go sin, the grace will abound more. I am not saying that. And then in chapter five, he says, by the way, if you sin, grace abounds more. <laughs> it's like, oh, I thought you said you didn't say that. No, I, I said that. I just wouldn't say it the way they said it. <laughs> I wasn't saying go out to sin, that grace abounds more. I just said, if you do sin, grace abounds more. It's awfully close, but it's different. And, and so Paul is coming on the scene and, and he is saying, guys, you're, you're, you're misinterpreting. I am a prisoner of Christ. I, I am not being punished by God. I'm not being muted by God. A matter of fact, as I find myself in prison, the gospel's going forth, even while I'm in these chains. Now, we know that Paul wrote half of the books of the New Testament, right? And they were almost all written because he couldn't go there. He had to write a letter. And we know now from the mind of, you know, who can counsel the Lord? Who knows the mind of the Lord that we can instruct him? God's ways are higher than our ways, as high as the heavens are above the earth. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, as high as the heavens are above the earth. God took that 
bundle of wisdom and fire, a man full of the Holy Spirit, and, and said, I'm going to just put you in this jail cell, and from that jail cell, you're going to explode in the spiritual realm. Man can't see it, but what God's doing in you, Paul, is going to be the foundation of the New Testament church until the rapture. And of course, Paul in the end of Romans says, hey, all of these servants of the Roman emperor got saved. Starts telling him by numbers. And he said, number of the guards have gotten saved. A number of the key leaders in Rome got saved because of Paul being imprisoned. And of course, this was always known by God, wasn't it? Before Paul got saved, he told the guy he was to lay hands on Paul, and Paul would be filled with the Spirit, he's a chosen vessel of mine. I'm going to show him how much one might suffer for Christ. He's going to be an example, not of just salvation of a, a man who was killing Christians, but a salvation of a man that, although he's so right with me, he's suffering much, and so everybody can never complain saying, I'm suffering so much. Well, not as much as the Apostle Paul did. And talking about a guy right with God, talking about a guy being fruitful. And after you've suffered much, you're going to preach to kings and those in authority. And God prophesied, and you will end your ministry in Rome. And so Paul knew. Even before he got arrested, remember Philip's four daughters prophesied and said, if you go down to Jerusalem, you're going to be in prison from that point forward. And Paul says, I, 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 I count that as a minor thing. And I know I'm going to be imprisoned. And I do not, I'm not bothered by that because that's the direction God's leading me anyway. So he is an apostle. He is an authority. It's God's will that they recognize that authority. As he says in Thessalonians, you guys got it right. Not very many places did. But when you heard my word, you received it as it is in truth. Not my word, but the word of God. And that's why there in Thessalonica, even though I was only there three weeks, three Sabbaths with you, the fruit of the gospel is so powerful amongst you because you received it not as a word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And so I am a sent one of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. It's the will of God according to the promise of life which is given in Christ Jesus. Ecclesiastes says eternity is in everyone's heart. You see that at a point where a child says, you know, what came before you, mom and dad? Well, my mom and dad. Well, what came before them? Well, their mom and dad. Well, what came before them? Their mom and dad. What came before them? And we finally get back to Adam and Eve. <laughs> well, what came before them? God created them. Well, what became before God? Nothing. God's eternal. Well, what's going to come after me? <laughs> Your kids. What's going to come after that? There's eternity from vanishing point to vanishing point. We can imagine it because it exists. 
Just like we can imagine a perfectly straight line, but we've never seen one. We can imagine an eternity because it's in our hearts. And our conscience that God created us with bears witness that what we do in this life is going to be brought to judgment. And then the rest of eternity, we are either going to pay the price for how we lived in this time, or we can receive Jesus Christ paying our price and receiving by grace through faith, not of ourselves, but as a gift of God, heaven, white as snow, without blemish, without spot. But we all know that life is an incredibly precious thing. It's a truly a gift that we're alive. And we know we have a sense in our spirit that we are going to be held accountable for breathing this air, for taking these steps, for having the power of words to speak, to have the power to love or hate, to forgive or to be bitter. And we are not just going to die and become fertilizer for the grass to grow green. We know we are much more than that, that we are also spirit that will go on for eternity. Either life unto life or death unto death, we all live, exist, every human being exists for eternity. But there's only one way that leads to life, and that is through the gift of Jesus Christ. No man can go to heaven unless he is perfect, as God is perfect. In fact, if we have one little blemish, we can't go to heaven. One tiny sin keeps us from being perfect, as God is perfect. One little white lie. <laughs> one little time in our hearts, we said, oh, you idiot. God saw the temperature of your heart. And it's the same temperature of somebody who murdered somebody. So in God's book, you're impure. And you can't make up for it. If you were to live 10,000 years of good works, it wouldn't undo that one little white lie. Well, how can we be made perfect again? How can we have a perfect record before God? We can't. But God, through his son, Jesus Christ, and the, by dying in your place upon the cross and the blood shedding for all of your sins, the little tiny white lies as well as the big giant lies, that you can be forgiven through him. This is the gospel that we have, the gospel of the grace of God blessing us when we don't deserve it. But the Bible makes it clear that God's spirit is in the world, convicting every man of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That if you'll sit still and stay sober long enough, if you'll put out that joint long enough to let your brain become sober, if you'll let the alcohol 
clear out of your system for just a couple of hours. If you'll shut off the radio and the TV and the internet just for a few minutes, through all of the noise, you'll hear the Holy Spirit speaking. And he'll tell you that even the smallest of sins will keep you out of heaven, but you know that you haven't committed small sins. We're not going to be debating with God over some trivial little matters. You are a chief of all sinners. Your sins are as filthy rags. Your, own, your righteousness is filthy rags for God. Your heart is desperate, deceitful, wicked, and you know it. And God's Holy Spirit will cause you to sense that grief of regret of how you failed man, how you've hurt the ones you've loved the most, and then also of righteousness. I know what righteousness is, and it seems like the harder I try, the less righteous I am. (laughs) What's going on here? I find that I truly am not just a guy who sins on occasion when I'm drunk or weak, that I am truly a sinner, even at my best moments. I still find there is a lack in me that I cannot fix. And then judgment, that I'm just not gonna die and my conscience is gone, my memory is gone. You know, that's it, that's the end of the story. Just beep, darkness, and it's like I never existed, no that I will live on forever. And Paul is in prison. He's in this hole. He's not focused on his pain and his suffering because he is saying here, skip over to verse 12. (laughs) For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed for I know whom I believe and am persuaded. He's able to keep that what I've committed to him until that day. I'm not, I have zero regret. Because I know there's only one way to life and we alone have the answer. And we need to go into all the world and preach the gospel and God by his grace has allowed me to do that. And Timothy, you are a witness on that. Most believe that on Paul's first missionary journey, he came to this little teenage boy. And then later, We now know in chapter 16 of Acts, in Paul's second missionary journey, he asked permission to take Timothy with him and to train him to be an evangelist, a pastor, a teacher, whatever God's giftings might do in his life. And Timothy followed him. So Paul didn't have kids of his own from his body, but he did have sons in the faith. And Timothy was as dear and near and close to him as if he were his own physical child. You are my beloved son. And as he does in the pastoral epistles, Titus and 1 and 2 Timothy, he doesn't just say grace and peace, but he says grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The world is trying to find peace. Sometimes they define it in different ways. 
Mick Jagger said, I, I can't find no satisfaction. I've had sex with thousands of women. I've done every drug you can do. I've been everywhere in the world. I've seen it all, done it all. I have wealth and fame. And I wake up with this incredible dissatisfaction and, I, and there's nothing left. Isn't that what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Wisdom, I, I had more wisdom than anybody on earth and it wasn't enough. Wives, I had 700 wives, 300 concubines, it wasn't enough. And how do you find that peace? There's only one way. And that's by coming to truth that you are a sinner. Your sins have separated you from God. God has made you for a divine purpose and plan. Evolution is the opposite of that, trying to tell you it's just some random thing and you're randomly here and, and, and you're just a, you know, one out of a thousand sperms. You're just lucky that you're even here. And, and no, we are specifically here. God made us, he knitted us in our mother's womb and he knows us right this moment, right down to every hair upon our head. And to come to that place that God is calling you to forgive you. I'm trying to call you just with my grandkids, you know. They're always so funny to try to get them to come to you, you know. They're all dirty and muddy and you're trying to grab them to put them in the bathtub. And you can't get them, you know. They run away from you and you try to finally snag them and rip all those dirty clothes and get them in the bathtub there. God's reaching, trying to get you to say, I know you're a sinner, but that I have already paid for all your sins. It's already done. Let me forgive you. Let me wash you. And if you'll, by faith, just say, but I don't understand. Who am I? Why do you want to give that to me? Why do you want to bless me? It's grace. I... It says in eternity, we'll still be learning throughout eternity. We'll still be trying to grasp what grace is. And if you come to that place, then you'll have the peace of God. You'll be satisfied in Christ. I tell people before they get married, if you're thinking you're dissatisfied and your spouse is going to satisfy you, <laughs> you're going to have a very unhappy marriage. Well, kids will satisfy me. Nope. They won't do it either. Money, nope. New car, better job, a different location. You, you can chase it all you want. This world will bring you repeatedly back to an emptiness. It's only in a spiritual life. You must be born again. 100% of us got here by being born through our mothers. 100% of people in heaven are going to be born there. Not through the womb of a woman. But by the work of God's Holy Spirit coming into a person's life, circumcising their hearts from that sinful nature, filling them up with their Holy, the Holy Spirit, and us with our will, surrendering, receiving, and walking following Christ and running that race 
until we leave these bodies. Not short of that, right? We've got to finish our faith to the end, it says in Hebrews 3. And so then you have that peace. And for pastors, leaders, have mercy on yourself. We preach better than we live, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's the problem. We, we, we know the truth better than, than we can, can live it ourselves. So I can preach on how to be the, the husband that Christ wants. But yet if you follow me home, <laughs> whatever you're picturing from my message, you hang out long enough, you'll see that I don't practice everything I preach. I want to. The willing is present within me, but how to perform that, I do not know. Oh, wretched man that I am. But we beat ourselves up still because we're like, man, in my mind, in every way as a Christian, I'm way up here. And then I turn a corner and I realize, oh, this is areas of my life, I'm still way down here. Man. I got so far to go. Now, why am I a pastor, God? Um, it's because you're so weak, Brian, you wouldn't go to church unless you are the pastor. So, it's like, yeah, that's probably true. And in verse three, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. Now he's referring to those who walked in faith Hebrews 11, as without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. So what's going on with me? Um, I'm thanking God. <laughs> and I'm just, wherever I'm at, I'm just living it, man. I'm free every day. When I lay my head on the pillow, I'm free because I, I, I walked as Jesus would walk. Oh, I was challenged in my flesh to be angry, to be frustrated, to be fearful. All the emotions, all the trials are going through, but I'm at a point in my life that even though my faith is being tested, it's being found pure as gold. Man, do you realize that's God's intent? That we're not a bunch of Archie Bunkers sitting around going, well, this is the way I am. This will be, will be the way I am till the day I die. You know, if you don't like it, get out, meathead. You know, um, it's, that's not what we're supposed to be, right? We're, we're to realize, James said, let the trials have their perfect work because God, why you're in this human body can make you perfect, complete, Lacking nothing. What? You can be the light of the world. You're to be the salt of the earth. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. If you will follow my traditions, the peace of God will be upon you, he writes. Wow. And he says now, I'm telling you, this is not something solely that happened with me. But men of God who purposed in their heart to seek the Lord and to serve the Lord and to walk in the will of God, they did it. I'm not saying they did it for most of their life, <laughs> but there was a 
season in their life. There was a decade before they died. I, I don't know how long it was that they can say, you know what? I now walk even as Jesus walks. I hope that all of us come to a day, even if it's just for a week before we die, where we can say such a thing. And then he says, what's that look like? It's just, I'm praying without ceasing. I'm, I'm just a vessel of God, of just constant prayer. So I'm down in this dungeon. I'm down in this damp place. I'm hearing guys curse and fight and rats crawling around and guards banging and screaming at us. And I smell the feces everywhere and, and urine and, and it's, it's a miserable place. But as for me, it's, I'm reduced now. I can't write letters. I can't really preach the gospel right now in this Mamertine hole that I'm in. But what can I do? I can give myself to prayer. Corey Timboom, you guys know who she is? She was locked up in the Holocaust during World War II for hiding Jews in her house, her and her dad and her sister. And why she was in prison there, she um, says, God took me to the darkest, deepest place somebody can go to to show me Jesus is there. <laughs> and then he released me from that pit so I could go tell the whole world, no matter how deep your pit, Jesus is there. But she went to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Pastor Chuck was her pastor. And of course, she was traveling throughout the world, even up into her 90s. But it did finally come to the place where her legs just wouldn't carry her anymore. Travel wasn't a possibility. But she was going to live for quite a while. And um, she came to Chuck and, and just torn up by it. And Chuck visited her. And, and, uh, and he said, Corey, now is the greatest ministry you'll ever have. All the seeds you've planted over these last 50 years, all the places you've gone in the world, all the people you spoke to, all the people that have come to Christ through your ministry, now you're just going to soak it in prayer that every seed comes up, that every tree bears fruit, and you're going to go out just flooding the world now with those prayers. And I am one who am thankful that you're reduced to only prayer because she knew, he knew he, she, she was praying for him. Boy, we often forget that prayer is the most important thing we do in this body, isn't it? We often say, sorry, all I can do is pray for you. Boy, that, that, that says really our mind frame, isn't it? And Paul is saying, I'm praying without ceasing like he told the Thessalonian church is possible. He's living it. And then he says to Timothy, not only am I praying for you day and night, but I'm greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears that it may be filled with joy. You can go back to Acts where all the elders of Ephesus came out to meet Paul. And they were weeping and crying and, and he was speaking to them and praying with them. At some point in there, Timothy in particular realized Dad, 
Papa Paul, this is, we may never see each other again. The man who really, from what we know, Timothy didn't have a dad in his life. The dad's not mentioned whatsoever. He was a Gentile, where his mom was a Jew. But we, we don't know. But Paul was there, and he's just like, man, my, it broke my heart when I left you there weeping, and you had such a heavy responsibility of pastoring that church. And, and, and I think about that, and I, I just, oh, I want to see your smiling face rather than your tearful face in my head. And I could just see you and hug you and, and, and be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Wow, let's stop and think about this a minute. The thing that is going to rejoice my heart more than anything, Timothy, is that genuine faith that was so inspirational to me. Seeing you have such faith when you prayed for the sick, seeing when you had such faith that God was going to work out some of those difficult situations we had, that inspired me. Timothy, as we're going to discover, is at a low point. He's not walking in a genuine faith right now. He, he is weak in his faith. And he's going, what was it that Paul sees in me? A genuine faith, really? You think I have like a uniquely genuine faith? Yeah, think of your mom and your grandma. Yeah, they, they are like the most beautiful believers I know. You're just like them. Now, flip over to chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. Paul's going to hit on this point again. In verse 14 and 15, he says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing whom you have learned them. Solid, solid source. And that your child, that from your childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice in chapter 15 there, or verse 15 there of chapter 3. From your childhood. The Greek word there is brephos. B-R-E-P-H-O-S. Why do I point that out? Because that is a specific word for infant. Not a toddler, not a child, but an infant. And it stands out very specifically because you wouldn't think that would be the case. But he is saying, Timothy, from you being a baby, maybe there is a story like Chuck Smith had a story, you know, Chuck in the womb had a hard time, and his mom, well, to make a long story short, she dedicated him to the Lord in her womb, like Hannah did, little Samuel. And in her mind, that meant that the whole time she was pregnant, she would read the scriptures. And Chuck says that from the day he can remember, he had a huge percentage of the Bible memorized. He has no idea where it came from. But he thinks back that it was probably why I was still in my mother's womb. Those scriptures went into my heart and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. But his mom continued all the way 
in the, in the baby crib and all his life reading in the scriptures. I know with my kids, I, I had purposed in my heart that before the age of 12, they would have heard the Bible many, many times. And we got them that Henrietta Mears uh, children's Bible, which takes out the genealogies and some of the stories that aren't child appropriate, but also wouldn't be understandable to them. And just read that. And of course, the kids are like, read another one, daddy, read another one, daddy. And, and you're reading, oh, read another one, daddy. Read another. You know, they want you to read all the time. And I, I have some really fond memories with a baby in the arms and a, a little three-year-old on one side and a two-year-old on the other side. And and just sitting there, read another one, read another one, and reading that storybook Bible through so many, many times. And here he is saying, you can know the source of where you learn these things, he says in 2 Timothy 3. Good, good teachers. In 1 Timothy, he says, in the church, it's really meant that the Adams, not the Eves, would be the leaders in the church, the teachers in the church. Because Eve was made second to support Adam. And then we know in 1 Corinthians 11 that the glory of Jesus is the Father. The, Lord, the glory of man is Jesus. The glory of woman is the man. Therefore, when the woman shines on earth, it brings glory to her husband. But when the man shines on earth, it brings glory to Jesus. Therefore, in the church, the women are to be there and ministering and serving, but are not to be the focal point, but they're to encourage the men, encourage their husbands. To, to follow God and fulfill their ministry. But it says, but ladies, your teaching, your fulfillment is in childbearing. Later on, he says, now the widows that you take up, that you're supporting financially, number one is they've not ever had any children of their own. But then another qualification is, but they've raised up a lot of children. Well, hold it. They didn't have any children. I know, but they were still very active in raising children. So we don't have Pastor Lois and Pastor Eunice, Apostle Lois or Apostle Eunice. But who do we have? We have the ladies who raised up one of the number one pastors of their generation. You see, ladies, you can raise up missionaries. As you minister to the kids, as you pour your life into those children, women have a, a faith. I can tell you that my faith comes from my Sunday school teacher growing up in Visalia, California. Mrs. Stoops, you know, at home, I, I saw very much a hypocritical faith. I did not see a genuine Christianity in my own. But on Sunday nights, 
There wasn't very many of us, but Mr. and Mrs. Stoops, and Mr. Stoops was a solid man. I don't ever remember him saying a word, <laughs> but he was there, and when he looked at you, you obeyed, but Mrs. Stoops, four years old, five years old, six years old, she had magic hands with those flannel graphs. <laughs> and we were on the edge of our seats. But her and him, when they prayed, as they lived their life, I can tell you that that faith, as I was going through my childhood all the way up till I really gave my life to Lord 15, I never forgot what genuine Christianity looked like from a very small child from them. So Timothy, go back to your roots. Those people that taught you, mom and grandma, they gave you a foundation that can get you through these tough years of ministry. As a pastor, you're going through a hard time, but you can handle it because of what your mom taught you when you were three years old. Those situations where grandma discipled you along the way. All the scriptures seem to apply at some point as they raised you up before I got a hold of you. You were already a deep, mature Christian before I met you, or at least a Jewish boy, ready for the Messiah, I should say. And now it's those things, not that you learned from me, but those things you learned going all the way back to infancy that is now gonna save you through these difficult times in your adult life in the ministry. Well, Lord, we thank you tonight for your word and we thank you that all of us can be incredibly significant in your kingdom, that you have made us all amazingly unique for your plan and purpose. And tonight, Lord, you have spoke the gospel. And so I can't help but believe that somebody here tonight or somebody who's gonna listen through some other method on the radio, through the internet, social media, that heart has been pierced through, faith has muscled its way through the doubt, that the spirit has gotten through the unbelief to belief, and the word of God has gone out and now they can believe, just like that lame man that fixed his eyes on Paul, and he said, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus, confess you're a sinner. I'm a sinner in your heart right now, I am. You're not in harmony with God, you're not in harmony with man. You are not finding peace or satisfaction in your own soul, and it's because you need to be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. By faith, you need to receive the gift of his death and resurrection. And now to look upon him as he looks upon you and to say, Lord, I give you my life. I identify you've made me for your plan, your purpose, that life is precious and it's not very long and I am gonna be held accountable for it and I wanna surrender completely to you from this second forward. If you're here tonight and you have not been living that dedicated life that brings forth fruit, not even 20-fold or 60-fold, but 100-fold, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me. Give me a purpose in my heart that it's, I'm lacking. Give me a, a passion and a zeal that the weakening of this world has, has faded it away and, and, and bring life to me again to live totally for your glory.
And thank you for uh, lighting all our fires here tonight, Lord, by the wonderful power of your spirit, through the gift of preaching, through the amazing word of God. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen. amen.